Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're listening to Griefcast with me, Cariad Lloyd. Griefcast is a place to talk, share and laugh about the peculiar human process of death and grief. Each week I talk to a different person about their experiences of grief and death as we remember someone that they have lost along the way. Whether it was a long time ago or you've just joined the club. Welcome to Griefcast. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey Griefsters, I hope you're having an okay week. Thank you so much for listening as ever, it's hugely appreciated. And thank you for your amazing and lovely comments about the new series. I can't believe we're on season nine is still a bit staggering to me. If you have been enjoying the show recently, <laughs> the new series or in the past, uh, please do rate, review and subscribe. And my book, You Are Not Alone, is also available to pre-order. It is out next year. I will probably be banging on about that just a little bit. But stay with me for more wonderful, honest and open grief chats. This week, I'm talking to the incredible Isabel Allende. You may know Isabel from her famous books, The House of Spirits, Daughter of Fortune, Inners of My Soul. Uh, Her brand new book, uh, Soul of a Woman, is out in paperback now. She's been... (sighs) won so many awards written so many amazing books it's it's a little bit difficult to go into them all now um she came in to speak to me about all sorts of things we mainly focus on the loss of her daughter paula uh which she also did write a book about which she talks about in the episode as well um and it was just an incredible conversation she is uh, i think she is 80 now and yeah i felt extremely privileged to talk to someone who's so wise and so insightful as it is about so i hope you enjoy So, Isabel, who are we remembering today? Every day, I wake up very early, around half past four, five o'clock in the morning. And I have a little time with my mother and my daughter. Mm. And uh, I get to, to be with them. They are my spirit companions. And um, it's a nice way for me to get started because it, it centers me and it gives me great peace of mind to know that 
that they are present in my life, both of them. What was your mother and daughter's name? My mother was called Panchita. She, her name was Francisca, but she, she was always called Panchita. And my daughter was called Paula. Paula. And Paula. Uh, they, they, they are so present. I'm surrounded with their photographs. And um, I keep them in, in my heart all the time. I, I didn't think that I would miss my mother so much. She died mm -hmm. right before the pandemic. And she was very old. She was 98 years old, wow. but very, completely lucid and, and there. And I was holding her when she died. Mm. And in a way, I was prepared because how can you not be prepared at that age? Yeah. I was very fortunate to be so old myself and have a mother. Mm. But, but I miss her. I feel orphaned. So she died just, was that in 2019? 2018, yeah. 2018. And, and were you with her when she died? You were there? You yes, said you were there, she, yeah. she lived in Chile and uh, I live in California. But as soon as I heard that she was not doing well, I, I went to Chile. And I could stay with her, her the last six days that she lived. Mm. And um, she had an attack of some kind never lost her brain or her mind or her consciousness and and very peacefully died in six days without pain which is a, such wow. a blessing yeah such yeah. a blessing at home in her bed and uh, i was with her and so was my brother juan so we were holding her it was very very nice in a way wow that's very Yeah, it's unusual. It's unusual to get to that age, as you said, to get to 98 and have a peaceful death with your mind intact. But And at home, you and know, because people, people die in hospitals in, in mm. this environment where you can't really be with, mm. with, with your family or with the people you love or in, or in a place that at least you know. And so did my daughter. My daughter died in my arms at home as well. How, how long ago did Paula die? of many years ago she died in 1992 December 6th and so it it was very very recently we had the anniversary of, mm. of her death which I honor by going to the place where uh, I scattered her ashes a, a beautiful national it's not a national park a state park that is like 40 minutes away from my house and it's a place that changes with the seasons changes every day And the place where I scattered the ashes is like was like a pond, and it has gone through periods of being totally dry, and other periods that it's flooded, but it's always there. It's like a cathedral of trees, very beautiful. So I go there often, but especially when it's January, when it's December 6th. Yeah. Did she live in California with you, or you made that choice to have that place to go near near your home? Paula lived in Madrid Madrid's with her husband mm. where she fell sick. She had a condition that runs in, the, in her father's family, family called porphyria, mm. a very rare condition. And she should not have died of it. There was neglect in the hospital, serious neglect. And um, my, my daughter ended up with severe brain damage and in a coma. And I don't know how I managed to bring her home to California in a united commercial flight. Mm. 
This is something that today would be impossible. Yeah. But then somehow I could do it. So I, I flew her home and, um, and took care of her at home until she died. How long was that between the... How long did you have to care for her? Well, I cared for her for seven months, but, oh. but the whole process lasted a year. Oh, my goodness, Isabel. How old was she? 28, when she, when, when she fell in a coma, and 29 when she died. She died exactly a year after. Oh, my goodness. I'm so sorry. Yeah, it, it is. I think often of how, how unnecessary it was how if they if they had taken better care of her she would be alive mm. and at the beginning i try not to blame anybody because yeah. because i knew that there was no bad intention mm. the hospital was crowded the, the the staff was underpaid overworked things happen you know mm. and no one tried to harm her really so i, I tried to not to put my anger in anybody. Just just be angry at the fact that I was losing her and I couldn't help her at, the, at my, my own impotence. But then you go through stages and then there is a moment when you have to accept that that's the way it is. And mm. I was not in control. And my way of, um, I would say, accept what had happened was writing. So when Paula died on, uh, as I said, December 6th, and I started all my books on January 8th. So uh, a month later, I was devastated. I was a wreck, really. And my mother said, if you don't write, you will die. Just, just write anything, just write. And she gave me back 180 letters that I had sent her during that year. And uh, I read the letters, and my mother said, they are in chronological order so that you will understand that Paula's only way out was death. And that she was trapped in a body, trapped in a situation that there was no way out. And so I read the letters and I started, I had started writing to my daughter in the hospital in Madrid because they told me that she would wake up. They didn't admit that they had screwed her up, really. Mm. So... Um, I wrote with the notes I had taken in the hospital and the letters I had written to my mother, I could write a memoir that is called Paula that was published a year after her death. And it brought me an avalanche of of mail. There was no email then, no internet. So it came by, by snail mail. I could fill up boxes of letters that came from all over the world because the book was immediately translated to several languages. And in those letters, I felt so connected to other people's grief Mm. because everybody has losses. Not everybody has lost a child, as as was my case. But people would write to me and say, I just lost my mother. Or they would say, I haven't talked to my mother for 18 years. And after reading your book, I realized that I have to get in touch with her again. And so that's why that person would write to me. Now, after 20-something years that have gone by, almost almost 30 years, Mm. I still get letters. Now by by email. At, At least once 
a week, one a week, but sometimes more, of people who are experiencing some kind of loss and they had read the book in the past and remember it, or they are reading it now, or they have someone who has had a loss and they want to give the book to. So I get all kinds of feedback still about other people's sorrows and grief and how to cope with it. And I cannot, I, I have no, no advice. I can only say we have to take, each person grieves in a different way, so take your time. No one can tell you that, that you have to stop mourning after a year or two years. No, it, it depends. And um, then why would you stop? Yeah, I That's know. another point. We say that a lot on the show of like, it's not about looking for the ending. It's about learning to carry the grief. That's what this journey is. And and I think the people who tell you like, oh, you know, one year is enough or two years, often don't understand. It's often people who haven't been through a great loss because they want to believe there is an ending. So they want for you to say, oh, I'm sure in three years you'll be fine. And that just isn't how life works. But I was wondering... Obviously, so I do this show about grief and I, I have done it for five years in the world of the internet. So I get the same, hundreds of messages, hundreds of emails from people who, who felt really alone and didn't know other people felt like this. How did it feel? Because I, I, I think emails are sort of, you know, you can sort of not look at your computer, but how did it feel to get hundreds of letters I mean you must have felt almost that you must have felt the physical weight of all that grief in those letters no I felt accompanied mm. I felt that I wasn't alone yeah that everybody I mean this it's very difficult to find a person especially after a certain age that has not experienced loss and grief yeah it's part of life so that that I never said when Paula was ill, why is this happening to me? No, I never said that because why not? Mm. I mean, why am I so special that nothing will happen to me? No. And it wasn't about me, it was about Paula. But um, by re when I re started receiving all that feedback, I realized that no one can say, why me? Mm. Because because we are all we are all human. We are all in this planet, living our lives, and grief is part of the process. We all die. There's no way. We all grow old, We all, if we are lucky, and we all die. Yeah, it's a fundamental truth that we somehow like to ignore. <laughs> and it's just like you said, we are all going to. There's no escaping. Whether yeah. it happens to you young or middle-aged or old, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Yeah, I am. I, next year, I'll be 80 years old. Wow. And, I, and I'm recently married. And one of the things that my husband and I remind each other constantly is we are going to die. So let's enjoy this moment that we are still lucid, we have health, we have dogs, we have this lovely little house that is on the water. So let's enjoy this minute because mm. the, the, the natural process is that we, we will deteriorate, we will become more dependent and we will die. Mm. And there will be a point where either he or I will be alone. So let's enjoy it now. 
I didn't think that way when I was younger. Yeah. When I was younger, life seemed so long that I didn't have to think about death. But now I do. And I don't think about death in a sort of morbid, mm. um, morbid, sad, depressing way. Not at all. It's, it's, it's like everything else. It's like the garden goes through winter and everything dies in winter. And then it comes back in the spring. So in my case, I will die in the winter of my life and then someone else will pick up where I left. I think that's, I mean, you're, you're putting it so beautifully. I, I don't need to add anything else. But I think what you're saying is so beautiful because once you accept that, once you accept that death is just there, you can enjoy things in such a more exquisite way because there's none of this, what does it mean? Or, you know, who have, all that sort of angst can kind of just kind of fade away for a brief moment when you're like, but... I'm going to die. You know, you don't have to stress about it, I suppose, is the crass But you know what also? You don't have to accumulate, mm, yeah, <laughs> which yeah, is also yeah. important. Yeah. And, and by accumulating, I don't mean only the material stuff. It's um, accolades, yeah. jobs, experience. No, just just live peacefully your life and, and enjoy every minute of it. And nothing is forever. Everything, you will have to lose it sooner or later. We, my mother used to say, we come to this world to lose everything. And, and it's true, by the time you leave, you, I mean, my mother left in a, in, in a box in her nightgown. Mm. And all the things she had accumulated, and she was a compulsive buyer, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what to do with them. How do you get rid of all that stuff? Yeah, yeah. So I don't want that to happen to my son, <laughs> to, <laughs> that he will have to get rid of my stuff. So yeah. I have gone through, not, not only after my mother died, but before my mother died, I divorced my, my second husband after 28 years with him. And we lived in a large, large house with a huge garden, with a swimming pool, with etc. And, and I sold the house. I moved to a tiny house where I could live alone with my dog one bedroom, a, pl a place to write, and a kitchen that I didn't need anymore. And then life happens, and an another husband <laughs> walked into my life. And now, and we, we started thinking, where are we going to move? Because this is so, so small. We, are, we fix the garage so that we can exercise in the garage, and we have managed to distribute the space so that we can both live with very little mm. because it's so much better it's so liberating and it's a when it's not that we are preparing yeah. to die but at our age we don't need more we need way less yeah yeah and i think that's the thing like it's like you said it's differentiating between morbidity of like oh i'm i'm sort of placing the gaze on that we're going to die and then just the acceptance it's there it's present like i'm not i'm not shining the light on death all the time and being like we're gonna die but i i because i lost my dad so young i i feel very similarly like it's just like everything is so transient you know it always transient, feels exactly. like you feel like sand is always going through your fingers you know you can't really hold anything friendships 
you know, relationships, love, uh, possessions, everything is coming and going just as people are. But it's this idea that you said of control that we that we would like to imagine we have. And I thought what you said about when, when Paolo was in hospital, you know, the impotence of is really what a lot of grief is, is the rage that you can't do anything about this, There's, they, they, that you are powerless. It's incredible mm-hmm. the, the way you spoke about that anger. I think a lot of people would want to get to that place of not being, not blaming someone. But it is, it's, it, that takes a lot of strength of character to be able to say this isn't a person's fault this is just a, a rageful but, thing but think think about it mm. it's not if you think about it a little bit with that a sort of open-minded it's sort of obvious yeah that of course you are angry because you are losing the person you most love in the world of course you are angry of course you are grieving but there's no one to blame yeah. unless that person has been kidnapped and tortured to death that's different but yeah but in a normal situation. Yeah, I think we it's very hard to live with it. Yeah, but I think it's I think it's incredible that you got there and that you can say that. I just think, yeah, it's. I often interview or I speak to people who are so angry in those early years of grief and and what. So obviously, my dad died twenty plus years, and I feel as you do of like the anger is never really with the situation, you know. They might say, oh, the doctor's this, or, or there needs to be more research, there needs to be more money. And you're like, yeah, what you're saying is, I wish they weren't dead. I wish they weren't dead. But it takes yeah. quite a long time often to be able to step back and see that's what your grief is telling you. You know, I think it's it's quite easy to get lost in the, if I can find someone to blame, then I can have control of the situation. But it, well, it's... In, 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 that, in that sense, all those letters I received helped yeah. me a lot. Yeah. Because, because then I could... I could compare my situation with the situation of other people. I could share and, and realize that everybody was feeling what I was feeling. Mm. How do you feel um, when you said you wake up every morning? How, how is it for you that they are present? What does that mean to you to have them both present? It's an exercise in memory and love. I don't see ghosts, unfortunately. Mm. I wish I did, but I don't. <laughs> and uh, But I feel the presence. For example, um, I'm in doubt about uh, something that I have to deal with for my next book. And I, in, in that, that time that I'm alone with, with them, with Paula and, and my mother, I ask them, what do you think? As I would if they were alive. I would call my daughter on the phone. My daughter was a psychologist. I would call her and say, Paula, look what's happening. And she would say, Mother, what's the most generous thing to do in this case? And if I would call my mother, my mother would say, go buy something. <laughs> I like her style. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> go buy something. The only thing that you regret in life is what you haven't bought. <laughs> and... and uh, and so we would laugh and, and I, would, I would get feedback from them. So try, in this exercise of remembering and of love, I hear them. I don't hear voices. I, I feel the answer. Mm. I feel the answer of what they would say in, in, in every case. How my daughter would push me forward and say, just take the challenge. 
take the risk. There's no life without risk. And my mother would say, be careful. <laughs> Why do you have always to be putting yourself in such a situation? Be careful. So I'm, I'm pulled between, between these two voices, but, but they're wonderful. And I, I feel them very present. That's so beautiful, Isabel. To have I am, you know what? I, I, am, I have a bad temperament. Naturally, <laughs> I, would, I would be irritated all the time. And that's my natural state. Yeah, yeah. But I, <laughs> but I have learned to watch myself and to rationalize things. For example, we live, as I said, in this very small house. And Roger is messy. And I am the most organized person in the world. I could be in the military. <laughs> and, and Roger leaves his socks on the stairs. And my first reaction is irritation. Yeah, of course. And immediately I hear myself, the voice of reason saying, this is a wonderful, kind man that has come to share his life with you very late when you are a mess myself internally. <laughs> and he bears up with you and gives you kindness and gives you protection and gives you... Are you going to make a fuss about the socks? <laughs> no. You, so you pick up the socks and you put them somewhere. But, but you don't, I, I don't explode as I would have when I was much younger. <laughs> so we learn. We learn. You know? And then I think, what if he dies? Oh, Lord, he, if he dies, I will always regret that I didn't pick up the socks. Yeah, so. <laughs> it's those small things, isn't it? It's those small, yeah, it those small yeah. details. Yeah, I know. I, I, I can very much relate, Isabel. I am someone, I am, a, I, I am cantankerous and <laughs> I have a bad temper and I, I am, I've got a lot better, a lot better, although I still have plenty of room for improvement. But that, that feeling of what used to overwhelm you I think if you're someone who lets things get, because again, I, I like things tidy and my way and organized. And again, I think that's a kind of control that makes me feel less anxious. And when people don't do that, I've learned to go, you know what? Everyone organizes their world in a different way. <laughs> and this, that's their way of organizing it. But it takes, it takes um, maturity, well, you know. You're, you're very young. I'm glad that you have reached that conclusion <laughs> so young. It took me 80 years, but... <laughs> But it's happening, finally. Yeah, I don't know, I've still got, <laughs> I, as I said, I've still got room. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome back to Griefcast with Carrie Ad Lloyd. The, what you're describing there with your mum and your and Paula, it's really interesting. I, for years, because my dad, because I was so young when he died, I forgot his voice. I really, I couldn't remember it at all. And that was a deep sadness. I, I couldn't hear it. I would search and it was gone. And then I was in therapy and my therapist said, do you know what he would have said in any situation? And I was, I said, yes, I do. And it struck me very physically of like, oh, then I haven't lost his voice, have I? And it was, I cried and cried because for so many years I'd been searching for a sound, you know, the sound of it rather than like you're describing that, like what would they say? And in every situation I could think, yeah, I know what he would have said or what he would have approved of, what he would have disapproved of, what he would have teased me for and when she sort of opened that side of the grief for me it it was so healing to understand like oh that relationship is still there it's still ongoing I haven't lost what felt like such a loss to not be able to have them their physical presence the sound of them and then actually the less I searched for the his voice the more it began to come back but when I was desperate to hear it you know it wasn't there when I was like fighting for it and when I relaxed and just went he's there I know you know I understand I would suddenly hear it and be like oh yeah that's that's what he sounded like but it was like this fight for I guess what am I trying to say like like you're looking for the wrong thing if that makes sense you know you're looking for the Mm -hmm. physical presence instead of listening to the voice that is actually already there I think that the people we love the most live within us mm. after they are gone. And so I feel that I am living, living the years that my daughter could not live. So I, I try to make those years, that, that life that I have inside her life, as beautiful as possible, mm. as poetic as possible, as she would have lived it. My daughter was a very special person. She was uh, exactly the opposite of my mother. She, she didn't want anything. So uh, she needed two pairs of jeans, five white t-shirts, a coat, <laughs> and a couple of cardigans. That was her wardrobe. And anything more, she would give it away. Wow. And according to her husband, because she was recently married when this happened, she always knew that she was not going to live long. But that, you, you know, many people say that after the, the yeah, fact. Yeah. But in, it is true that she didn't want anything. I remember that I wanted to buy a, a dishwasher for her. And she said, no, I don't need a dishwasher. I can wash two dishes. That's no problem. I, no way. She, she didn't want me to, to interfere in her life, to give her more than the strictly necessary that she wanted or needed and and so when i when i try to live my life i think in those terms mm. i think she's inside me i'm living for her and, and for myself too and and so 
I have to respect that part of her, mm. the part that was compassionate and, and um, caring. She volunteered all her life. She never made a penny. And the, the giving, the giving of everything. So that, that unbound generosity that she had, I tried to leave it for her. Not because it's natural in me. Mm. Probably I'm closer to my mother. I would like to have more. <laughs> but, but because she's inside me, I, I try to live that part. So to hear the voice or not hear the voice, it's not the, the, the point. Mm. My grandfather raised me when I was little because my father abandoned my mother when I was three. And we moved to live with my grandparents. My grandmother died soon and then I grew up with my grandfather who was a wonderful man but he was an old-fashioned patriarch you Mm. know he was severe strict with a rigid code of honor which was very important for me because that's the my voice of the voice of my conscience is the voice of my grandfather and that voice I can hear it Mm. But, but it, because it comes from childhood, probably. Yeah, yeah. But I can hear him because he's the one who says, what are you doing? What are you doing? Why are you not working? You have not done your homework. The, uh, pushing me, pushing me to be more disciplined, to be, to be tougher, not to complain, not to whine, not to ask for anything because no one is going to give you anything. That, that message, you know, mm. I grew up with that. And I have worked in therapy to try to get rid of that voice because I don't don't need it now. Yeah, yeah, I needed yeah. it. I don't. I needed it in my life because <clears throat> I have had a very difficult life, and so the fact that I don't whine and I don't complain and I am tough has helped me through all those obstacles, and those and exile and being a political refugee and losing everything. All that has been uh, possible for me to survive all that because of the voice of my grandfather. But I don't need it anymore. So, so I don't want anybody telling me, get up, it's for six o'clock. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> get I'm done. Up. What are I'm you done. doing in bed? Yeah. I'm done. <laughs> Give me a break. I'm done. Yeah. But he's there, you know. Yeah. There, there. Maybe what I'm trying to say is that you have to choose when and whom to hear. Yeah. Of all the, the, the spirits that live within you. At my age, it's a lot of spirits. At your age, it's your father. But in life, we will have many, many voices and many memories that will help us through all the obstacles and all. And we have to, to listen, not to all of them, and maybe not to all of them all the time. Because I know that I shouldn't listen to my mother when I go to Nordstrom. I shouldn't. <laughs> I don't know, a little bit. I, a little bit. I sort of want you to listen to your mother occasionally. Because, you, you know, I think that's, yeah, God, I mean, Isabel, you're amazing. That's um, it's so interesting, isn't it? Like you said, those, I think the, the language you're using is so beautiful, the way to describe it, those voices, those spirits that live within you. And when they're when they're appropriate and when they're not and and the context as well you know like yeah you're making me think my grandfather was such a character and he was so charming but he was of his time you know a real patriarch of his time 
and there's things now I look back and I think yeah that wasn't okay was it like how you (laughs) saw women in that way but his love and his charm and his wit is you know something I I can walk away with happily but like that you said to choose the spirits and I think having your mum and and Paula with such different messages is is so beautiful because it is important to remember the treating yourself and the buying nice things like that is important you know to not completely you know become monk-like of like no no no, 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 the balance is what I know the other other spirit that that I have with me is my stepfather who was my stepfather was a happy man proud of himself he was also a male chauvinist horrible pig (laughs) but (laughs) But he was charming, as you would say about your grandfather, and um, and he enjoyed life. He loved to dance. He loved music. He could make a cocktail. He was <laughs> he was funny. He played with words, and and I always forget that I should play more mm. because I'm not a playful person. And and when I remember him, I remember his sayings. One of his sayings, for example. I remember once I was like 14 years old and I was invited to my first dance with boys. And I was, I had such an inferiority complex. I thought that a frog was better looking than me. And I I just didn't want to go because I knew no one would want to dance with me and it was going to be awful. And I cried and I made a mess and I didn't want to go. My stepfather took me to buy a dress, which I didn't want. And then he said, now you're going to learn to dance. And, and he taught me to dance in the living room of the house. First with a broom, I would dance with a broom, then with a chair and then with him. <laughs> and I ended up dancing Charleston, whatever. And then he took me to the party and he said, stand next to the music because the boys who changed the records, this was the time of records, yeah. the boys who changed the records are the only boys who dance. <laughs> And they are so scared of approaching a girl that might refuse them that they will pick up the one who is closer, (laughs) and that's you. (laughs) And then he said, don't eat anything, because how are you going to invite to dance someone who has a a plate with a piece of cake? That's like an armor. You cannot, it's shield. So forget eating, no eating. And then remember, everybody is more afraid than you. And I have remembered that all my life, everybody's more afraid than me. So when I confront a situation in which I feel really scared or shy or whatever, I remember his voice. Everybody's more scared than you. Oh my God, that's amazing, <laughs> Isabel. What, what advice? I mean, he's right. He's right. He's right. Like, he's so right. But I know yeah. that feeling of being that intimidated teenage girl and like just assuming that people would rather be sick than dance with, you, you know, like <laughs> that nothing is lower than a teenage girl's self-esteem. It's like through the ground. And he's right yeah, because exactly. like the boys who change the records also, yeah, like dancing, like music and hey, you're doing that. Let's go. Like, yeah. oh, that's such good advice just in general. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the modern equivalent is now because obviously they don't have records but whoever's playing the music on their phone like be near them or something but that's that's so I think also what you're describing so beautifully is that uh, is true character in that we sometimes especially at the moment we hone in so um narrowly on what what people are of like well they believe this therefore that's it and what you're talking about that's so beautiful is like people can be so many things as a whole person, you know, complete male chauvinist, but utter charm and the life and soul of a party. But like to remember that people are such 
mixtures and complications and nuances it, it, it's such a sort of because we all are we all are so when you remember those spirits wholly and take something from them that's that's warming it reminds you you know we we all have these different pieces of us that make up us at that point in time and we will change and we will grow but it's so I don't know there's something so comforting to um the good advice of a <laughs> slightly chauvinistic <laughs> advice of a, yeah. a guy who wants his daughter his uh, stepdaughter to dance but yeah that's it's, there's so much you love know, in that as, as, as a writer as a, as a fiction writer I have to create a story but the most important thing in a story are the characters because yeah. they they carry the story and they have to engage the reader. And, and the characters, in, in a, good characters in fiction, have to be like people, complex, yeah. contradictory, yeah. that you expect one thing and something else happens. And, and that's how people are. And in order to do that, I usually look for human models to inspire me for the character. For example, if I need to write about a soldier, I don't trust my my imagination to create the soldier because of my prejudices against the military, for example. So um, I look for, for a soldier and I engage in a relationship with a soldier to see how he is, what he thinks, uh, his body language, his, how his house is, how, what he eats, what, if he drinks wine or not. All those details create a character. And I'm giving you the example of the soldier because when I was writing a crime novel, my only crime novel, I looked for the soldier and I had him, I got in touch with one of the Navy SEALs that took down Osama bin Laden. And I had imagined this, this buffed up mm. bully of a man. He was exactly the opposite. He was a slight man with the hands of a pianist who knew about classical music and he was an expert in wines. <laughs> I would have never come yeah, up with yeah. anything like never. Wow. And and so when you when you see people how 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 we expect something and they turn out to be so different like an onion you start peeling peeling mm. peeling layers and new things appear. And I think that's what I found so helpful for grief is to understand your grief in terms of a narrative of characters of the role yeah. you played in it the role they played in it and I think that's I sometimes think when people say oh you know time time heals or time's a healer what they really mean is once you get hindsight you can look back at a narrative like you finished a book and you can go oh I see I see all these things that made this you know that happened or why I behave like that and they behave like that and that's what's it's not that it gets easier. It's just you want, you can just, I think, see the narrative clearer. And that's definitely what happened with, you know, me and my dad because I was a teenager and learned lots of things that I was so angry at myself. I was able to get, you know, into my late 30s and think, oh, I see. I was a teenager. That's what teenagers do. I was just doing mm -hmm, those mm -hmm. the chess moves of a teenager and he was just doing the chess moves of a middle-aged man confused by his teenage daughter. <laughs> and, yeah. you, and I think that's what's so... Well, I'm obsessed with narrative and, and characters and, and what I think it can help with grief once you... And as I thought you said, to go back to what you said about Paula and the letters to your mother, like them being in chronological order, being able to see the narrative you were in that you didn't know at the time because obviously you were just trying to write to, you know, your daughter and communicate with someone that you loved. Do you think that has helped you in any way, having sense a sense of your own narrative when it comes to grief? Um, when I write... 
sometimes I write a scene and I'm not sure or I am not pleased with the result, with the tone. I wanted to say something and it comes out something different. And then I read it aloud. Mm. And I realize that if I change three or four adjectives in the paragraph, the tone and the story changes. And so when I describe my own life, I choose the adjectives. I don't want to choose depressing, dark, Mm. gray adjectives. I want to tell my life in technicolor. I want my life to be epic, to be fantastic. And so although probably my life is the life, is very similar to everybody's else's lives, the way I tell it is the way I tell it to the world and myself. And I end up believing it, that this is what my life has been. Uh, so I think that in, in, in grieving, we can also do that in a way. We can narrate our grief in terms that are not dark. It's not the underground. Mm. Our, our grief is, is, can be a flight. You, you know, when, when my daughter was dying, she, she, it took her several hours to die. Um, but we knew she was dying. And um, I fell asleep for a little bit. This is what I remember. And I had a dream that I had had before when she fell in a coma. And the dream was very similar. But the, the, the summary of the, of the dream is that there was a silo. And my daughter was around 12 years old. The silo was empty. But there was some, some grain and dust on the floor and doves. Many, many doves fluttering around. And my daughter was standing there, 12 years old, and she started to levitate and go up, up, up. And I held her by by the clothes and tried to pull her down, but she would still keep on flying up. And I was holding on to her and flying with her up the silo. And there was an aperture up there and she could get through. And I could see a blue sky, and she would get through that aperture and keep on flying. And I couldn't follow because I couldn't go through the hole. And I had that dream, and and then I started to descend amidst the the fluttering doves. And that dream, which was such a vivid dream that to this day I can describe it in detail, is the way I see grief. I see it like, like a flight in which you, you go with the doves and you go with the dust and you go in this place that you think is, you are, will be there trapped forever. But there is an aperture and you can see the sky and the person whom you are grieving for has left through that aperture and you will eventually. But right now you are still with the doves in the, in the silo. So stay there and wait. And, and the, the other person already is flying away and you will someday, hopefully, go up there. So it, for me, grief was a horrible experience of, of, of pain, of course, terrible pain. And to this day, when I think about it, I cry. But, but it was also the, the richest, most extraordinary spiritual experience, which made me a different person. That's the year I turned 50. 
and I was never again the same person. I, I became, I left behind my youth and, and something changed inside me that was probably triggered by grief or maybe it was going to happen anyhow because my hormones were giving away. I don't know. But, but the thing is that everything that is essential in life and the only really essential thing is love. The love you give more than the love you receive. And that's the, 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 what I learned in that experience of the silo. The love for her and the love that allows me today to wake up every morning and say good morning to her. It's an exercise in love and memory. Isabel, thank you so much. <laughs> what a what thank a, you. What a beautiful thank you. That was just well Yeah. Wow. I hope that you have your own silo when you die. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. He's, he wasn't quite the dove person, but <laughs> but I do. Well, I may, do. Maybe yeah. they were hawks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Instead yes. of doves. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely, definitely. And um, that's so beautiful, Isabel. What a beautiful description of of Paula and your your relationship with her. And um, thank you so much for sharing with us. Well, thank you. Your memories and of- good luck with luck with this program that is so important. Thank you. Because it touches so many people when they are in need. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I really, really yeah. appreciate it. Thank it you so much. Connects people, you know. When we are connected, grief is so much more bearable. Mm. In some cultures, there is a whole culture of grief where people really accompany each other. But we live in a place, I don't know you, but here in the United States, where, where grief is sort of denied. Yeah. You are supposed to be young and beautiful and successful. And and if you are grieving, no one wants to be with you. <laughs> yeah, it really? is not. It is not a place of glamour. It's a place of truth and raw uh, emotion. Yeah, and yeah, yeah people yeah. don't want to sit with it. But like, thank but you. But if you were in Greece, you would have a bunch of women <laughs> dressed in black crying with you. <laughs> okay, we're going to go. We're going to go and buy some nice things, and then we're going to Greece, and then we're going to yeah. <laughs> whale, and then we're going to be generous. Don't worry, Paula, we won't forget. We will also yeah, yeah. be generous. Buy the well. things and then give them away. Yeah, yeah, enjoy oh, okay. them and then give them away. <laughs> Isabel, thank you so much. I really, thank really you. appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, take care. Isabel's new book, The Soul of a Woman, is available to buy in paperback now. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Griefcast. The show was recorded uh, remotely. Hmm, where was Isabel? Somewhere in America. <laughs> I was in my living room. It was... I really just thought I heard something sorry it was just anyway oh no I did it was edited by it's my children returning hang on it was edited by Kate Holland the music was provided by the Glue Ensemble and remember you are not alone up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com